guess who's I'm back? Gonna... Back in black and all that. I thought you were going to go Eminem. Back I did too. Shady's back. I don't so. know Eminem. Oh. No, come on. <laughs> Wasn't allowed to watch Boy Meets World. You think my mom let me listen to Eminem? <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't watch Boy Meets World? No, they dated, they, they dated before they were 16. It was inappropriate. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Good thing your mom would let you watch that show. It's true love. Wow. Good thing she saved you from running off and getting married when you were 18. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're a little vicious tonight. I'm sorry. That was too perfect. I never even thought of that. Yeah, she sure she sure kept me safe from that. Oh my gosh, but it's okay. I did watch Boy Meets World and I did the same thing, so she was screwed. Damn what she did, damn what she did. Yeah, it's true. My poor Oh mom. gosh. Oh, I'm sorry, Mimsy. Oh, I really like Mimsy though. Dawn. It's okay, she doesn't listen. <laughs> Tank's my favorite. Tank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she might dislike me if she listens. So that's now. So that's a good thing she doesn't listen. I'm gonna tell her what you said. <laughs> oh no, I will be uninvited to Tampa. No, she'll laugh. <laughs> okay. Oh, you remember that that thing I sent you on Instagram? Where it was like, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters? And you're like, can I send them a text? They're like, no, you gotta call. I was like, well. Guess I'm just having this effing ghost. Yeah. I sent it to my mom. She was like, you dang right. Because <laughs> I ain't calling nobody. <laughs> my mom will call me to have me schedule her doctor's appointments. You did that to Lacey. Where do you think I get it from? <laughs> <laughs> when you had to reschedule it, you texted her and you were like, can you reschedule this for <laughs> I mean, I just don't like calling people. And here I am with the podcast. (laughs) At least the podcast doesn't call you. You have to come to the podcast. It's true. I do this when I want to do it. And uh, I talk to people that I want to talk to. So anyways, we weren't supposed to talk for very long because we have a really long case today. In true crime news, the Daybells... He has been indicted for his wife and the kid's murder, and she they're waiting to hear if she's mentally competent to stand trial, but sh- I think she's going. <laughs> cool. Cool story. I'm glad we uh, had a lot of inf- like oh! chatting about that. I thought you were waiting for Miranda to stop moving her stuff. I was waiting for anybody to answer. I was like, hello. Sorry. I thought you were giving that look because Miranda was moving her the No, I was just like, see me. I can do whatever I want. All that matters is that we we're can listening. hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was Sorry, Never listeners. Died. I was shaking my computer. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to hear that. <laughs> Sound like you're scratching your butt. My luggage. There you go. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. so glad we got to chat about that for a minute. Sorry, I'm not super up to date on that, so I'm. Kind and of I don't lost. know enough about it to put in my sense, but I was gonna say that can definitely be a case that we cover. 
Well, what were you saying? You do you think she's? Well, she's saying that she is uh, not competent enough mentally to stand trial for murdering her children and her ex-husband, but she is. She's totally playing the system and lying about it again, and she's to- like people. People know because like I don't even want to get into it because it's really detailed and long, but. Read a news article or two, catch up, and maybe we'll do this as an episode once the trial's over because I want details. Me too. I want to know what happened. No, it would be interesting because I've just heard like bits and pieces, so I'd love to hear it all together. Yeah, all together would be great once it's out, once it's like everything's out and over with. But anyway, the trial's over and stuff. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we don't want to spend a bunch of time talking. We've already spent five minutes and spent, had a lot of issues, technically, as usual. <laughs> Anyways, hey. I have the case today. It's me, Ellen. Hi. And... Hello, Ellen. <laughs> I spent a lot of time working on this, like a couple weeks. I read an entire book specifically about it. I have a ton of information from the book and from a documentary and from news articles, which the news articles didn't tell me anything the book did. So basically, I used mostly the book and the documentary because I liked because they were the families were interviewed by the author of this book. So it was like accurate information anyway so today i want to tell you guys and i don't think either of you really knows this case very well correct me if i'm wrong but today i want to talk about the disappearance of susan powell i don't think i'd heard about it at all or if i had it was just her name in passing i know nothing about it it's interesting because you were out in idaho in 2009 weren't you yes I and actually, this happened. This happened yeah. in Washington and Utah. So in 09? in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Well, you know that was my freshman year of college, so I can't say I was very interested in the outside world at the time. But yeah, I, I am surprised. Okay, I remember hearing about this. I lived in Kansas at the time. No, I lived in Texas at the time. At the end of two thousand and nine. Anyway, so let's start. <laughs> Let's get this. Let's get into this because it's real long, you guys. I have 34 pages of research that I have written down. It, there's a lot. So this is definitely going to be a two-part episode. At least. Maybe a three if, <laughs> if, if we have a lot to say because let me just tell you, this case gets crazy. Absolutely insane. This This is the case for me that I'm like, I have to know what happened. I have to know. It's not solved. Mm. it's not technically and see and I know so little about it that to nothing really that the more you were like telling me about all the research you're doing I'm like okay you just got to tell me because you're getting me more and more amped up no I've been really excited to, for for our recording tonight so let's get into this yes because I'm ready I know you're ready and uh this has been burning a hole in my pocket for a few days let's go all right here we go so on the morning of December 7th 2009 Debbie Caldwell arrived at the daycare that she ran, and she welcomed all her little kids in as they arrived for the day. Um, 
at that point, she's thinking it's going to be a normal day. But then she glances at the clock, sees that it's 6.40 in the morning, and realizes that two of her regular children haven't shown up. And that's not normal because their mom usually calls to say that they're running late or they're not going to be there that day. And she assumes that the snowstorm that they had had the night before just kind of slowed everybody down that morning. So she just kind of kept carrying on with what she was doing. She had a lot of kids to look after. And um, by 9.53 in the morning, there was still no Charlie, no Brayden at the daycare. And their mom and dad hadn't called yet. So she started to get a little concerned because Su- their mom, Susan, was her friend. They went to church together. Susan was very responsible. She always called if something came up. She was always on time to pick the kids up and to drop them off. So Debbie's like, all right, something's wrong. So she calls the emergency contacts listed for the kids. And she also jumped in her 15-passenger van. She ran a daycare. (laughs) She had all those kids. No, she ran the daycare. So she's like, I'm going to go check on the family. It's not super far. So then she arrives at 6254 West Sarah Circle, the home of her friend Susan Powell and her husband Josh. So when she got there, she was met by the emergency contacts, which were Josh's mom, Terry, and his sister, Jennifer. And they were all knocking on the door, looking in the windows, trying to get them to answer, and nobody answered the door. There was no noise, no lights coming from the house. There were no footprints coming out of the house because, like I said, there was a brand new fresh snow on the ground and then there were no tire tracks coming from the garage so like okay obviously they haven't left they're not not home so they've got to be in there so they got really concerned because there had been recent cases of entire families dying in their homes because of carbon monoxide poisoning in the area so like we gotta we gotta get in there and by that time the police had been called because they were like you know, nobody's answering. This is not normal. So they were at the house as well. The police were at the house with Debbie, Terry, and Jennifer. And they were also concerned about the carbon monoxide poisoning. So they asked Terry, Josh's mom, for permission to break a window. They're like, we don't have a key. This is the only way we can get in. Do you give us permission as his mom to break this window to go and check on them? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. When they got into the house, they didn't see Josh, Susan, or their two sons, Charlie, who was four, or Brayden, who was two. Nobody was in the house. But they did see a box, two box fans that were below, facing the love seat and uh, the carpet. So they were on the floor blowing onto the love seat, and they touched them, and they were wet. The carpet was wet. The love seat was wet. And they're like, that's weird. What's, what's with the cleaning? You know, that's weird. And... They went into the bedroom, and Susan's purse was in the bedroom with all of her stuff in it, except for her cell phone. And they're like, well, that's weird. Everything else in the house looked normal. It was like people lived there. Like, there were toys around and whatever, but nothing to say that they had been there that morning. You uh, made the comment that there were not any fresh tire tracks, and you might get to this, so forgive me. Did they have a garage? Was the vehicle still in the garage? Yeah, so they had a garage. The car was not in the garage. Okay. So they're like, well, they went somewhere. Jennifer, who was, remember, Josh's sister, she called her friend Giovanna to see if she knew where the family was because Giovanna and Susan were really good friends. She also texted her friend, Kiersey, 
and told her that no one had seen the family since right after church the day before. And in an interview with Oxygen in 2019, Kiersey talked about that conversation. She said, quote, I te- or, I'm sorry, Giovanna. She said, I texted Kiersey and I said, that's not true because I saw them yesterday afternoon. They thought that nobody had seen them since church, but Kier- or Giovanna, um, Giovanna's like, no, 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 I saw them after church. So it turns out that Giovanna had gotten a call from Susan on Sunday afternoon asking her if she would come help her untangle this big knot of yarn that she was using to make a blanket for her son, Brayden. So Giovanna is like a knitting wizard. What's so funny? Mormons, am I right? I know, they're so weird. (laughs) (laughs) I have a problem with this giant knotted ball of yarn and I need assistance. Yeah, basically. So yeah, that's, I, yeah. Oh, I live, y'all talked about me going to school in Idaho. Oh, yeah. I was around those kind of people. She said that while she was there around 3.45 p.m., Josh had uncharacteristically volunteered to make pancakes for dinner. And his sister Jennifer later said, it doesn't sound very sinister except when you realize that Josh refused to make food, like on a normal basis. We'll get into him. Giovanna said that she thanked him for bringing her her plate and thanked him she is in Susan thanked him like for bringing her her plate and she thanked him for putting a blanket on her. And she said, see, isn't that nice? He could see that I was a little bit cold. And Joanna's like, yeah, that's nice. That's sweet. Why do you feel like you have to point it out? See, isn't he nice? Exactly. <laughs> and so after a while, Susan said, I'm feeling kind of tired. I'm going to go lay down for a little bit. And Giovanna's like, all right, well, I'm going to finish untangling this yarn. Did Giovanna have any of the pancakes? Well, Josh made them their own individual plates, but yes, she had some pancakes. Did Josh make her her own individual batter of pancakes? That's what I'm thinking. I don't know, man. (laughs) So she said that then Josh decided that he was going to take the kids sledding and basically was like pushing her out the door. And by the time, before she'd even left the house, he had already left with the kids. That's what happened. That's the last time Giovanna had seen Susan. And so family members are at the house the next day. Can't find them. Family members are calling her job at Wells Fargo. They learn she never called in sick, never showed up for work. Very uncharacteristic of her. So then at 3 p.m., this has been all day they've been looking for these this family. This is Monday. And this is Monday. Mm-hmm. At 3 p.m., so this started at 6 in the morning, or about 9 in the morning, 10, about 10 in the morning. 3 o'clock rolls around, and Susan's friend and neighbor, Giovanna, the one who undid the yarn... She called Josh, but he didn't pick up. So she hung up. Her son Alex tried calling him on his own phone, and Josh answered it, but Alex got really spooked because he's like, Wow, what do I do? And so he hung up. And Joanna's like, What the hell, man? No, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We got to figure out where they are. So she calls Josh right back on her son's phone, and he answered again. She was like, Josh, the police are looking for you. Where the heck are you? And Josh is usually, like, this super chatty Kathy. Like, he doesn't stop talking. Like, you know that person that never stops talking? That's Josh Powell. No, like, not like that, though. Okay, kind of like Miranda. (laughs) Like, worse. We'll get into that. So he was silent. He didn't say anything. He sat there for, like, a minute, and he was like, oh, we're just driving around. And Joanna's like, okay, well, where's Susan? Josh was quiet again, and finally he's like, well, she's at work, and we went camping the night before, and she didn't come with us, 
Okay, so I wrote down, Giovanna called a scrimpy ass out again. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. And said, no, she's not at work. We called her work and she didn't show up. You didn't go to work either, so where are you? She is like, baller. So Josh tells her that she's calling him out on it. Yeah, she's totally calling him out. She's like, that's some BS. She's being Ellen. She's me. (laughs) Yeah, she's me. So Josh is like, well, I got my days confused. I thought today was Sunday. So that's why I didn't go to work. And that's why we went camping. And Giovanna's like, um, no, you're lying. Where's Susan? It's like, dang. So Josh somehow managed to get off the phone with Giovanna because she's a scary bee. And he checked his voicemail. And two minutes later, he calls Susan. He leaves her a voicemail. And then for the next two hours, he just kind of drove around West Valley City. This is in Utah, by the way. And he didn't answer any more phone calls. So then, 5.27 p.m., his sister Jennifer calls him. He doesn't answer. At 5.36 p.m., he leaves Susan another voicemail. At 5.43 p.m., he leaves her a third voicemail on her phone telling her, hey, I'm in, I'm at your work. I'm here to pick you up. Come out when you're ready. And this dude has already been told she never came into work. She's not at work. And yet he's driving to her work saying, hey, babe, I'm here to pick you up. Like, yes. seriously? Yes. If I ever go missing, I hope I have a friend like Giovanna. And then Miranda said, we have Ellen. If I go missing, I hope no one stands around in the snow debating on whether they should get in. Just break the window and get in. Yeah. Well, they did, but they couldn't find them. But I'm saying, like, don't ask permission. Like, don't be like, should we do? Like, just do it. Yeah. And I feel like nobody would notice I was gone the morning I was gone. Because if you hadn't heard from me in a few days, you'd be like, oh, I wonder what she's up to. If you didn't hear from me in a week, it would still be normal. After two weeks, I might start to smell and you guys will come looking for me. <laughs> but you don't have a job and you've got to count on the kids. So if you didn't show up for your job that morning, which you've never been late or missed before, and mm-hmm. then your kids don't show up for their school daycare, which they've never missed before. Th- I mean, that's a totally different story than just somebody who's a homebody and mm-hmm. doesn't talk a lot. Yeah. Like, that's red flag central. Right. So at 5.48 p.m., Josh finally calls. He makes a phone call to Jennifer, and this is what happens. Um, So this is an excerpt from the book I I read. It's called If I Can't Have You. It's by Greg Olson. It's really good. I listened to it on Audible, and then I bought it again. This title's really crappy, but it's, like, good information. It's just about the case. Well, you said Greg Olson, and I instantly was like, the LDS painter? No, different, different <laughs> Greg. He's a crime writer. Clearly, I knew it was a different person, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, he's a crime writer. So this is what um, it says from the book. Um, so she, Jennifer, wasn't home. She was, she was, she was, she was home talking to t- Chuck. That can't even freaking read. Ugh. So this is talking about Jennifer, right? When I say she, that's Jennifer. She was home talking to... This is for sure going to be a (laughs) three-parter. Yeah. She was home talking to Chuck Cox at the moment, and she told him to listen in and stay quiet while she put the call on speaker. 
Where are you, Josh? She asked. I'm at work, he said. You're lying, she said, knowing he hadn't gone to work. Where are the boys? They're safe, he said. Where's Susan? Jennifer continued. I don't know. Work, I guess. No, Josh, Jennifer said. We know that's not true. How much do you know? Josh asked. Now she felt real fear. Why would you ask that? Josh, what have you done? What did you do to her? Jennifer asked. Josh hung up. Could you so, be more guilty? Could you be more? Could I be any more guilty? I just was gonna do that. I was like, wait, I need to correct this properly. <laughs> <laughs> so while Josh is joyriding around the city, Detective Ellis Maxwell, who is, uh, I love him. He arrived at the home, and when he walked in, he instantly was just furious. This was a potential crime scene of a missing family, and everyone who showed up to see where the family was, including the patrol officers, were walking all around the house, potentially contaminating the crime scene. So Detective Maxwell's like, you guys need to get out now. So he makes everybody leave the house. He starts taking pictures of the home. And in an interview with Oxygen in 2019, this was the documentary that I watched. It was really good. He said... Quote, we have a house that's completely locked up. Susan's purse is in her bedroom undisturbed. She hadn't gone to work. The kids hadn't gone to daycare. They didn't reach out to anybody. With all these little things that are popping up, it would make me more suspicious as the day would progress. Close quote. So Chuck Cox and Jennifer Graves, after the phone call with Josh, they both wrote down what was said on that phone conversation. Because they're like, we need to write this down because this was sus. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. It was sus. <laughs> um, so then Jennifer's like, I got to get back over there. So she gets in her car. She drives back to the house on Sarah Circle. And that's where Detective Maxwell was waiting. So she tells him what happened about the phone call. Okay. I'm so sorry. Please don't hate me. It's okay. But what was What is the question he asked again on the phone call? That he was asked, like how much do you know? Okay, that's right. That's right. Okay. This dude is a total BA and he's like he calls Josh. He's like you need to get home right now. And Josh is like, the "Oh, cop. yeah. He's a he's a homicide detective. He is everything I aim to be in life." Mm-hmm. And Josh is like, "Oh, well, um I need to feed my kids. They haven't eaten. I need to feed them." And he's like, "I don't care at all. Your wife is missing." We don't know where she is. You're saying you don't know where she is. You need to get to your house right now. At 6.40 p.m., Josh finally arrives home. Also, super red flag that someone says, where are the kids? And you respond, they're safe. They're safe, yes. You don't respond saying, oh, they're at their mom's house or they're at who? They're with me. Where else would they be? Yeah. Yeah, they're safe. Right. Mm -hmm. That's so, real sketch. Yeah. So he gets to the house at 640 and Detective Maxwell's like, bro, what's up? Why haven't you been answering your phone all day? And Josh is like, oh, oh it's okay. I had it turned off because I wanted to save the battery. And detective, so the detective's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay. So if you want to save the battery, then why is your phone plugged into a charger right there in your car? And Josh is like, he had nothing to say. So then Detective Maxwell sees a second phone sitting there next to Josh's, and he's like, whose is that? Can you guess whose phone it is? Susan's. It's Susan's phone! Because that's the only thing missing from her purse. Yes, it's a pink razor. Do you remember those? Yes, I wanted one so bad. I had one. (laughs) Flip phone. Yeah, awesome phone. 
So now the detective is asking Josh, well, why do you have your wife's phone? Her purse is in the house. Why do you have her phone? I, I feel like she wouldn't leave without that. And Josh is like, yeah, but you see, I needed a I needed a phone number off of it and I forgot to give it back to her. Now I know you're all dying to know where Josh had been all day, right? Yes, I am. Well, dear old dad Josh informed everyone that just before midnight, the night before, he decided it was a great time to wake up his two and four-year-old and take them camping in a snowstorm. Oof. They went camping in a snowstorm at midnight. A two-year-old? A two-year-old and a four-year-old. So I can tell you with someone who has an almost one-year-old, I would not wake them up in the middle of the night for anything, if nope. I if possible. I wouldn't wake me up in the middle of the night for anything. So he's like, well, um, Susan, st- I left and sh- Susan was asleep in her bed. She was in the bed and um, I don't know where she is. She's supposed to be at work. He, she's at work, right? So the funny thing is, <laughs> Josh took their one and only car on this camping trip. So how the heck was Susan supposed to get to work? Oh, my God. Without a car and without a phone to call a friend to come pick her up. Uh-huh. So Detective Maxwell tells him, you need to come down to the station because we got some stuff to talk about. So they go to the West Valley City Police Department, and Josh finally sits down for his first interview at 7.15 p.m., more than 12 hours after Debbie Caldwell noticed two little boys missing from her daycare. Okay. So we're going to pause that there, and we're going to talk about who Susan and Josh are. What's their background? So Susan Marie Cox was born to Chuck and Judy Cox on October 16, 1981. She was their third out of four daughters. Chuck was in the Air Force, and after six years, he decided that the Air Force life wasn't for him. And so he got out of the military, and the family moved to Alaska. And he got a, he got a job in Alaska. They lived there for a little bit, and then they moved to Vancouver, Washington, until they finally settled in Puyallup, Washington. Am I saying that right? Puyallup, Puyallup, Pew. I can't say it. I'm going to get so much hate for that. <laughs> if we had any listeners, I would. <laughs> so there, Chuck began his career as an investigator for the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. And he actually had a pretty cool job. He would go to airplane crash sites, and it was his job to figure out what happened. Yeah, FAA jobs are awesome. Yeah, so they were comfortable. Like, he made good money. So the Coxes described their daughters as being all very different from one another. Mary was the oldest. She was very organized. She was very put together. And that would serve her well as her eventual eventual career as a paralegal. Um, Denise was the self-proclaimed black sheep of the family, just based on the fact that she got pregnant at 18 and was a single mother. Um, so she, I guess she had a little rebellious in her, a little rebellious streak, but who didn't? All of us did. (laughs) The youngest, Marie, used her position as the baby of the family to her advantage, so you can imagine what that was like. And Susan, daughter number three, was, quote, the dreamer, the girl who saw beauty in everything and everyone. Let me just put, let me just say, if I ever get murdered and you guys have to sit down for an interview, don't say that kind of crap about me, because it's not true. (laughs) <laughs> it's not true. 
Uh, just well, be real. Not. She painted the weirdest rainbows on the doors. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's oranges all over her walls. Yeah. Seriously, just be real about it. She wouldn't stop cutting her hair. She, she can't stop. <laughs> okay, so the Cox sisters shared the love for parakeets when they were young, and each one of them loved animals, but it was mostly, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that thing about birds. That's a weird thing for me. But mostly Denise and Susan. They were the animal people. So they even came up for a business they wanted to start called, and I think this is really clever. It was called Beauty and Your Beast. And it was going to be a hair salon, a hair salon and a pet grooming salon. So you could get your hair done while your dog got groomed at the same time. That's okay, so I 100% cool. would go there. And I, I love would that. totally go there if I didn't always get my hair messed up by salons. So Susan really loved doing her sister's hair and she would practice on them quite often. So it really wasn't any surprise to check in Judy when Susan decided she was going to go to cosmetology school. And I have another thing to read. From her sister, Mary, 46. Um, This is from the book again. And it says, quote, When Susan was going to school for cosmetology, she had to practice on other people, so I was her dummy. I let her cut and color my hair. She told me to lean my head back rather than sit up straight. And she ended up taking a lot more than I wanted. Let's just say I told her she could never cut my hair again. Same girl, same. That happens to me all the time. Yeah. (laughs) so as you can tell susan was from a very loving family on january 20th 1976 joshua stephen powell was born to stephen terry powell in spokane washington the family was consisted of five children jennifer josh johnny mike and alina So acting as the complete opposite of the Cox family and their loving home, the Powell home was dysfunctional and absolutely chaotic. Early in Steve and Terry's marriage in the space... Okay, listen to this. In the space of two and a half years... This upsets me so hard. In the space of two and a half years, Terry had already given birth to three children and had a miscarriage. The mom? Yeah, two and a half years. Whoa. What year is this? 19 well i mean in their marriage you know that would have been 1975 control era yeah but she wasn't on it yeah but i mean geez Mm -hmm. so she was the mom of three kids in two and a half years while steve worked nights at a grocery store trying to make ends meet and there were many times that they didn't even have enough money to make it to the next paycheck and they went hungry they didn't have a lot of food either so Wait, Josh was his parents? Yes, his parents. Okay. This is Josh's childhood. So when he was 16, his parents went through this nasty divorce when Terry found a bunch of Steve's personal journals where he described in graphic detail about his obsessions over women that both he and his wife knew. It was also when he was 16 that Josh tried to commit suicide by hanging himself, but... I think it said the rope broke or something. So, like, he wasn't successful. He just had, like, rope burn on his neck and, like, he never tried to do it again. Steve also told his wife that he wanted to start practicing polygamy. And Terry was like, no way, Jose. And then she later found out that Steve had given her a venereal disease. And she was like, okay, well, he's, I think he's paying for sex. Because what the heck? So, Terry's like, yeah, I'm out. So, she dipped. And, and, like, all their kids, except for Jennifer, who was an adult, 
went to live with Steve. This was when the parents were going through the, the divorce, or I'm guessing the reasons that they got divorced? Yeah, that's why they got divorced. Wow. Yeah. She was like, I'm not, li- no, 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 no. So all four kids, except for all five, so there were five kids. All The four younger ones went to live with Steve in his crazy house, and Jennifer was an adult, so she, like, lived on her own. So while both Josh and Susan were raised as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their home lives were actually very, very different from each other. Susan had this very stable and loving family, and they were super support. What are you guys eating? Popcorn. Popcorn. I'm putting popcorn. (laughs) We're muting ourselves so that we don't interrupt it with ASMR food eating. But... It's 1030 at night and it's going to help me stay awake. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I just want some. Anyways. So, thank you. So, anyway, sorry. Susan had a very loving, stable family home. Home life and everything. Josh was raised in a family that was very divided and dysfunctional. Um, Steve, his dad, was very immersed in anti-Mormon teachings and Terry, while Terry was an active member of the church, so it was very, um... This is Josh's parents, right? Yeah, this is Josh's parents. It was The very... dude who wanted to be a polygamist? Yeah. Yeah, well, that yeah. doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, and Josh seemed to take after his dad. He soaked up all those anti-Mormon teachings and the negativity that his dad just, like, spewed out at the kids. And... Jennifer had said that it was like her dad tried to pit all the kid put like make all the kids against each other. Like he would tell them, "Oh, well, he said this about you and she said this about you." And she's like, "None of it was true. My dad was just trying to make us hate each other." Why? That's so random. I don't know. It's just crazy. It's just bad parenting. So when Susan was 19, that's when she met Josh. They were at an LDS event for young single adults. Woohoo! Her dad had said that she was very, very eager and impatient to get married and start her own family. At that point in his life, when they met, Josh wasn't an active member of the church, but he didn't pass up an opportunity to go to any activity that would allow him to meet girls. So Josh and Susan actually met through a mutual friend. His name was Tim. And Tim actually wanted to date Susan, but Susan was, like, not interested. But when Josh told Tim that he liked Susan... Tim introduced them, and Susan agreed to go on a Josh a date with Josh. I don't know why, because Josh is gross. Let me just send you a quick picture while we're here. How old was he at this point? How far apart are they? They're, I think, four years apart. So she was, you said 18 or 19? She was 19, so he was like 22 or 23. So it's not um, too bad. No. I want to send you guys a picture. I want you to have a visual of who we're talking about because I want to vomit. So this is Susan. Here, I can just show you on here. Can you see that? Oh, she's so pretty. She's pretty. Susan's beautiful. And this is Josh. Oh. Oh, Oh my gosh. He looks like an uglier version of the British office guy. Ricky Gervais? No, I know who you're talking about. The guy that lost the eyeball in Pirates of the Caribbean. He plays Jim in the British office. Oh. Um, no, he yeah. plays he plays Dwight. Dwight. Does he play Dwight? You're right. Yeah. Martin Freeman plays Jim. Yeah. Okay. 
So anyway, back to this. But yeah, that's the visual. So okay, people- let's just okay. One word to describe how ranked this dude looks: goatee. That's all you need to know about this yeah. picture. That's all you need to know about this dude: he is wearing a goatee. That's yeah, bad news. I don't know what she was thinking. So people who knew Josh described him as someone who talked incessantly about himself. He acted like he knew everything about everything and was convinced that he knew more than anyone else about everything else. And he was also very loud, very overbearing, just like in your face, obnoxious. So basically a narcissist. Yeah. Chuck and Judy, Susan's parents, were not fans of him because they remembered, okay, this is so freaky. Like this, mm. Oh, I can't even, you guys. I, it makes me cringe so hard. Tell it, girl. Tell it. I'm trying. I'm trying to get it out. Chuck and Judy remembered him from a time when he tried to date Susan's oldest sister, Mary. Okay. So on the night of Mary's prom, Josh decided that he was going to be Mary's date, even though Mary already had a prom date. So he showed up at her house, even though she was already at the prom with her date. And Josh, either completely oblivious or just plain ignorant, sat down in the on the couch and he flapped his gummy jaws at Judy until Chuck came home and told him that he, that he needed to go home. Right? He just freaking talked. He wouldn't leave her alone. So you think that I know, and you would think that that would be enough to like make him leave. But Josh just like looked at him with a blank face and just kept talking. He is my nightmare. My li- that is my worst nightmare. Someone who just won't leave. Somebody, yeah, somebody who just won't shut up. So, despite oh. being a complete, not like you, Miranda, I know you won't shut up either, but it's different. <laughs> I'm just having a lot of fun with this. Sorry, <laughs> Miranda talks a lot. If you can't tell, <laughs> but I, yeah, well, we'll, we'll I wanna, leave it at that. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say I do it for people's enjoyment but i'm sure he thought he was too i don't know he just thought he knew everything so despite being a complete freaking weirdo susan for some some reason she fell in love with him she was crazy about him her family always had this really weird vibe from josh and they even told her that and judy told her told susan that she had a bad feeling about him and she still didn't listen to her mom So Chuck knew that because Susan was a grown-up and she was her own individual independent woman, he knew that he couldn't tell her to stay away from Josh because she would just do the exact opposite of what he said. Hi, it's me. I did the same thing. And so he had a heart-to-heart with Josh and asked him about his plans for the future. And Josh had a job. He had an apartment. He was in college working towards a business degree. And so Chuck didn't really feel like he had a leg to stand on in the argument. Because he's like, well, I mean, he's not, like, just sitting around doing nothing. Like, he's working towards a career. He's in school. He's got a place to live. He has a job to support himself. But Judy, on the other hand, said that she felt that Susan was marrying Josh because she was like, you know, I can be the one to make him happy. And I can change him. Girl run you cannot change somebody who doesn't want to be different like it just it's so upsetting so after dating for about two months josh and susan got engaged like they only knew they only knew each other for like two months yeah that's short yeah so Susan earned a scholarship to cosmetology school, and she also worked in the salon at the mall after graduation. 
And money was actually really tight because Josh could never hold a job for more than a few months because nobody could stand him for longer than that. So after they got married, Josh and Susan moved in with Josh's dad, Steve. Let me just show you a picture of Steve so you can get a visual. I think he's the creepiest out of everybody. Ew. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's worse. Oh my gosh. I just, I'd rather be dead. Yeah. Ew. So, during their marriage, Susan and Josh had quite a few disagreements about Steve. What Josh saw as harmless behavior, Susan recognized as predatory. But we'll get into that later on because it is intense. So they only lived with Steve for a few months before they moved to Jenner's first house in West Valley City, Utah. Didn't you say, so just going off the predator thing, didn't you say that before Josh's parents split, the wife found, like, basically obsessive stalking stuff about girls? I did indeed. Oh, I can, oh, I can only imagine how you, that is with you, a woman living in his You house. cannot imagine how bad it gets. Yikes. But we'll okay. get into that. So Jennifer, who is Josh's sister, she said that for the first three months that Susan and Josh lived with her, they argued a lot. And Susan was super short-tempered with Josh, but he was also very controlling of Susan. So once they moved into their house on West Sarah Circle, Susan had begun telling her friends that she was having a hard time imagining staying married to Josh. And that after his sons were born, he became very cold, very distant, and he would find every way he could to control her and everything she did. This included keeping her from accessing the money she had earned. Like, yeah, it was her money, and he wouldn't give her any. Friends of hers encouraged her to leave Josh because he was extremely controlling and emotionally abusive. And there were things that she told her friends that are super alarming, like the fact that he would go into a rage if she gave the boys both an entire hot dog instead of cutting one in half and letting them share the one hot dog for their dinner. So that's like starving those kids. Yeah. And then the fact that she was the main breadwinner of the family, she was only given less than $100 a month for expenses like food and gas. Whoa. Yeah. And she had to hide money from Josh to be able to even buy anything because that was like obviously not enough to feed a family yeah. before. 100 so, bucks can be gone in like a week on food. For a I can spend four. it in a day on food. Yeah. I spent that on just three days worth of groceries. Um, so then he got rid of their second car. He kept their minivan for himself, even though he was barely working and the kids were in daycare. So like, what did he need it for all day? And then he got Susan a bike so that she could ride the seven miles to work and seven miles home. So was he, was he taking the kids to daycare in the morning then? No, she was. On the bike? I guess she, I guess she would take them and then come home and ride her bike or something. Cause oh gosh. Because, like, the daycare lady said that Susan was usually the one to bring them because when Josh would bring them, they were always late. Always late. So, now this part upsets me, too, because I've had this kind of guidance. But under the guidance from their bishop, Susan stayed with Josh and began marriage counseling. But Josh soon quit going and refused to be medicated for any mental health issues. And her bishop told her, you know, if you just pray harder... Things are going to get better. Things are going to change. You'll be fine. Just pray harder. You just got to pray more and read your scriptures and go to the temple and you'll be fine. I hope that bishop felt guilty ever since. 
I hope so too, because that is some BS. That happened so, to me. Yeah. I want I wanted to leave my anger and abusive husband. And I went and told my bishop, hey, I'm leaving him tonight. I just want you to be there for protection so that I can actually physically leave without being harmed. And instead he showed up and blabbed that that's what I was doing, that I was leaving. And he made me stay and have a council session. And basically, like, I felt trapped after that. He's like, you just have to stay and work it out. Work harder. I was like, screw that's, you, dude. That is not okay. Yeah. Not okay. No. So, like I said, Josh wouldn't – he refused to be medicated for any mental health issues that he might have had. So, he often showed signs of paranoia and told Susan he didn't want to be diagnosed with anything because he didn't want potential employers to find out that he had been officially diagnosed with manic depression. So, this is another excerpt from the book, if I can't have you. And it says, quote, Despite a deep faith that put family first, Susan's friends felt she should leave Josh. Susan told them that if her marriage didn't turn around by their wedding anniversary in the spring of 2008, she would file for divorce. She later gave Josh new deadlines, April 2009, then April 2010. She gave him 100 second chances, not so much because she loved him, although she did, but because she didn't know what he'd do to her or the boys if she left him. She was held captive by love, fear, and the church's promise that if she prayed harder, everything would get better. Let me just say here that sometimes, if you're a religious person, sometimes the answer to prayer is to leave. Sometimes that's the answer. Your religious leaders can tell you all day long, oh, we don't get divorced and you're supposed to work at your marriage. But if you're in, if you're in fear for your children's lives, exactly. leave. Or your own life, mm-hmm. then get out. Like, mm-hmm. he can't hurt you when you leave. Like, t- well. He could, but. The chances are less likely because you're not under the same roof as him. Like, mm-hmm. take your kids, go somewhere safe. Tell people what is going on in your life. But yes, sometimes the answer is to leave and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes Susan would Susan would often tell her friends that Josh had a lot of expectations that he put on her as a wife and a mother on top of her being the one that earned all the money in the family. And she said that if she didn't meet his high expectations, he would make her feel like a failure, he would shame her, and he would get really angry with her and, like, fly into a rage. Whew, okay, so... I don't like this guy. <laughs> no. So that's the background. Now we're going to go back to Josh going to the police department. When Josh sits down for an interview at the West Valley City Police Department, he's got his two sons with him until they were taken out of the interview room by a victim advocate. And this is the story that Josh, who was visibly nervous, told the police. So first off, he was unable to remember what Susan had even been wearing the last time he saw her. He did say that on Sunday, she had been tired in the afternoon and laid down for a nap. And after she woke up, the family ate hot dogs. And they either watched the Santa Claus 2 or the Santa Claus 3, but he couldn't remember which one. That's when Brayden fell asleep, and that's the younger little boy. He was two. So Josh decided to take Charlie, the four-year-old, sledding. So when they got home from sledding, Susan was watching TV, and Josh then read Charlie and Brayden a story before he decided to break out his new rug doctor that he'd spent a ton of money on a few weeks before. So he then randomly started to clean the couch. Just randomly. After he finished his random domestic duties, he decided that he wanted to take the boys camping. And Susan was like, nah, I don't want to go. It's really late. It's cold. I don't want to go. Um, 
He didn't leave the house with his sons on this camping trip until after midnight. And I feel like at that point, I would have just said, like, let's go in the morning because it's really late. I'm tired. I don't want to go. But I'm not in the business of disappearing my wife. So what would I know? Josh then drove two hours to Simpson Springs. And remember, this is the time of the night when they're having a blizzard. So there's a blizzard going on. It was supposed to be record cold temperatures. And, you know, you know, that's like perfect weather for camping with two little kids in the middle of the night. Yeah. So Josh said that they looked they took firewood with them so they can make s'mores. But he forgot the chocolate. So they just had marshmallows on graham crackers, which is disgusting. They didn't bring a tent on their camping trip. So they all slept in the van after they tried out their new generator. What? Oh, my gosh. Right. If you don't have a tent, why are you going camping in the middle of the night? Exactly. So just know that it wasn't really uncommon for Josh to do these spur-of-the-moment random trips or to lose track of time, especially camping. Wait, you said it was not uncommon? It was not uncommon. And there had been a previous camping trip that Susan also didn't go on. And it ended in disaster and they came home early because the boys cried the entire time and wanted to go home. After Josh tells him his story, Detective Maxwell asks Josh, you know, where do you think your wife is? And he just didn't have anything to say. He never says anything helpful. He stumbles over all of his answers to the questions about where she could be. Like, I don't know if she's ever led him in the, left him and the kids before. She hadn't. Why Josh missed work? Oh, he thought it was Sunday still. If they had been fighting in the days before Susan went missing, no. What their relationship was like. And it took him like a minute to basically say it was normal. But he tried to say, he made a point saying, we didn't fight. And then there's the fact that Josh was stuck on the idea of Susan missing work. So Maxwell goes, do you think she's in danger right now? Like, do you think she's hurt? And Josh is like, I don't know. I don't think she would do that. Maxwell's like, you don't think she would do what? Josh goes, I don't think she would miss work. Like, he's just not concerned. So the detective finally tells Josh that he's concerned about Susan because no one has heard from her or seen her since the night before. And being her husband, Josh should know where she is, but he doesn't. He's like, I, I'm, I'm concerned now. Like, what's going on? In interviews in the years to come, the West Valley City Police Department says that Josh never showed any concern. He was never worked up. He never got emotional about Susan being missing in any interview they conducted with him regarding his wife's disappearance. And Josh was unable to even recall the names of any of Susan's friends. Like He couldn't say she could be at her house or her house. Like, he had no idea what her friends' names were. It was either that or he didn't want the police to talk to them. I actually would like it if you guys would read part of a transcript of this first interview that Detective Maxwell had with Josh. I think that this will give you a little insight into what they were dealing with. So let me send it to you really quick on your phones. As a detective, even if that husband doesn't know for some weird random reason who any of his wife's friends are, you know where she works. Everybody at least has one work friend. And so also church, like you gotta, I imagine, you know, what church she goes to, you know, where she works. Like, even if the husband is like, oh, I don't know any of her friends. I'm sure you could go to her work and be like, who's her good friend here at work? And they'd be like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's me. Let's talk. You know, like that's not a good enough reason to not talk to find out who her friends are. 
Okay. I guess is what yeah, I'm getting at. Yeah, I agree. If you last seen her at midnight, that's the last time you've seen her. Um, nobody else has seen her or talked to her since, so she's basically been missing for about 20 hours. Okay. So where would you think she would be at? Does that concern you at all? I mean, just because... It, it does. It does concern you? Yes. Okay, so help me try to figure out. I don't live with you. I don't live with her. Okay, you guys have been together for, what, seven years? Um, it seems like maybe eight. It seems like, sorry. I know, like, you don't know? Yeah. Okay, eight years. You know her a hell of a lot better than I do. First, we're taking a report at two o'clock in the morning. Well, I think she would go to work. All right, but she didn't go to work, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's then that Josh tells Detective Maxwell that he just, he's like, can I just go home? Huh, no. Like, can I go home? Like, okay. I, so tell me they arrested him. Like to me, that's sketch, sketch, sketch. City. Oh, it's all sketchy. So the West Valley City Police had Josh sign a consent form uh, for them to be able to search his van. So if you're a parent and you're taking your kids camping in the middle of winter, what kinds of things would you take with you? Blankets, Maybe some diapers, wipes, oh, yeah. snacks, food. Blankets, clothes, ways to keep warm. Hats, I don't know, maybe a tent. Oh, but he hat, didn't have a tent. Hat, gloves, pillows, sleeping bags, all that kind of stuff, right? So let me just tell you what they did find for Josh's little camping trip. Okay, he was Midnight prepared. He was trip. he was prepared, but not for camping. Um, so while they searched his van, they found an electric generator, which he said he had. They found a couple blankets. Okay, they found a gas can, a tarp, a shovel. A circular saw, a humidifier, two knives, a tripod, a new but opened box of latex gloves, and a rake. Sounds like you cut up and buried a body. Yeah, and then burned it. So none of this information I burned was burned it. Well, he had a gas can. Oh, 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 gasoline. Yeah. Gotcha. So none of this was even public knowledge until a few years later. So none of that got out to the press or to, they never told anybody. So by 9 p.m., Josh was able to collect his kids and go home. Oh, hell no. Yeah. Neighbors said that he had, when he got home, he backed his car up to the garage and he spent a majority of the night deep cleaning it. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, wait. So they, he signed a consent form for them to look in his car, but they didn't, like, take any samples of anything? I don't know. They, I don't know like, what they did. What is wrong with this detective? I don't know. Is this the same detective that ta- he talked to? He wasn't the one to to search it. Oh, okay. He was talking to Josh. So while See, Josh... Oh, if I, sorry. Yeah, if, I know. I, I know. I feel like you'd be informed that that's what's in his car before he's allowed to go home. And then I'd be like, yeah, I think you're going to stay here. Trust me, you're going to get way more mad as this goes mm. on. So while Josh was in his interview talking to Detective Maxwell, his four-year-old son, Charlie, was being interviewed by a detective named Ken Whalty. So while she gently questioned Charlie, she asked him what he did on Sunday, who he was with, and he told her he went camping with his mom, his dad, and his little brother. Would you guys like to read this, too, or do you want me to read it? We can read it. Read it. Give your voice a break. Oh, it's it's really short, so I'll just read it real quick. 
So Kim asks him, Charlie, when you guys came home from camping, who came with you? And Charlie goes, my dad. And Kim goes, and? And he goes, well, my and my mom stayed at Dinosaur National Park. So he, he said Dinosaur National Park because he associated camping with Dinosaur because they had been camping there. I just want to say, I went camping at Dinosaur National Park this summer. Yeah, you did. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking of. So creepy. So he says his mom stayed behind. And this was after Josh said that Susan didn't go with him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the next day, December 8th, was two days since Susan had last been seen. And it was that day in the afternoon that Josh finally had the decency to call Susan's parents to let her know, hey, she's missing. So thank goodness Josh's sister Jennifer had the forethought and the decency to have already done that. So Chuck and Judy weren't completely blindsided by the news. Josh had actually had a scheduled interview with the police that morning, but before he left, his sister and his mom, so Jennifer and Terry, went back over to the house on Sarah Circle because they're like, we got to go over there and see if everything's okay. So when they get there, Josh was still cleaning his car out. He was doing laundry. He was cleaning up the house. And Jennifer and Terry helped him. Later, Jennifer was like, I didn't even think about it. I was just like, you need to go to your interview. Let me help you. And she's like, I didn't even think about it. Well, see, the thing is, okay, sorry. If they don't know his sketch story, if they don't know the sketch stuff in his truck. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have known. Exactly. You're coming over to a guy who has two young boys and the Mm -hmm. mom is gone. And you see him do a laundry, picking up after the house. If you don't suspect him, then yeah, you wouldn't instantly think that that was weird. You wouldn't think anything of it. So don't blame them for that. Yeah, and Jennifer said, this whole situation was odd. I didn't know what he was really doing, you know? Did he do something to Susan? So he finally shows up to his scheduled interview at the police department four hours late. Whoa. And the interview went the same way the one had the night before. He had zero concern about where Susan could be. He had no explanation for any of the odd behavior that he exhibited. Ten years after Susan vanished, Detective Maxwell said that when he watched the interview over again, he just, like, wanted to reach in and slap him. He said that Josh acted like being at the police station was a complete waste of his time. And Maxwell said about that day, I'm irritated, I'm upset, I'm nervous, because what has he been doing for the last three and a half hours? Like, where has he been? So Maxwell asked a series of questions about whether Susan had any enemies, whether Josh felt like he was under arrest, and why he thought Susan might have left. And every time he asked him a question, Josh answered, I don't know. Nothing. Something is not right with that. Like, I know, obviously, we know, but I feel like as a detective, you can't just be like, okay, cool, great, I'm sorry you don't know. No, clearly, if he's acting like that, and those well, are his responses. You need to do something. He, oh, he is. Detective Maswell is on it. Okay. But he has, this is like only the second day. This is the second interview. Like he's trying to figure out like what's going on. Yeah. So it wasn't until the detective asked Josh if Susan was depressed or suicidal that Josh was like, oh, yeah, she was definitely suicidal. But then when he asked Josh to talk about it, he's like, okay, well, tell me about that josh was like oh we never really talked about it though but i definitely know that she was but i definitely know that she wanted to kill herself so 
Maxwell also said, I think the reason he jumped all over that was because he didn't have anything else to offer us because what he did have to offer us, he couldn't because it would implicate him. I had no doubt that he was responsible. However, I could not prove it. By the time Josh's interview was done, his car was being processed again and and search again, but it would only, they said, oh, it'll be done in about 15 minutes. You can have it in 15 minutes. But instead of waiting, Josh left his phone with Detective Maxwell. They took it for evidence. He walked out of the police station without his vehicle, and he went and rented a car on his own. Instead of waiting 15 minutes? Instead of waiting 15 minutes, he went and rented a car. It's not like you're worried they'll find anything. You left it there, and then you spent all night and all morning cleaning it out. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they didn't find that cool. out until the next day that he had rented the car. Otherwise, they would have followed him. And in one of the interviews, oh. yeah, and also in the interview, Josh was like fixated on the fact that Detective Maxwell had asked him briefly about his hands because they always asked to look at your hands and his hands were super chapped and they had like a small cut on the knuckle. And Josh said that Maxwell was accusing him of having defensive wounds when in fact, Maxwell had never said anything about it. Even when he said that, Detective Maxwell was like, I never said anything about that. You're the one bringing that up. Like, I never, I just asked to look at them. Like, I just asked you what was up with your hands, and you told me they were chapped, and I said, okay, cool. And you're the one that's fixated on your hands. And it's a procedure to examine somebody's hands and take Uh pictures of them, especially in a missing persons case. So, on December 9th, police executed a search warrant in the Powell home and removed boxes, bags, and a computer. And they also found minuscule droplets of blood on the wall and on the floor next to the love seat. Of the home? Yes. Wasn't the love seat the thing that he was cleaning? Yeah. And the blood was found to be Susan's blood. But the drops were so tiny. Like, you couldn't even see them with the naked eye. You had to, well, you could if you got super close. Like, they were like a, like a pin point, you know? Like, like spray almost. Like the bulk might have gotten on the love seat and just a little bit got on the wall. Yes, exactly. So it wasn't until the next day that the police department learned that Josh had run the car. And in the 20 hours that he had the car, he had driven 806 miles in this car. This meant that he could have driven to southern Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, southern Utah, Oregon, or even Nevada. And the possibilities were completely endless. And no one ever found out where he went or who he was with. They never figured it out. In 20 So basically, he walked out, rented a car, and for 20 hours, no one knows what he did. Exactly. No one had a clue. Okay, wait. Pause for just a second. Yeah. Let me get out my phone. 800 miles or 800 what? 806 miles. So cut that in half. Well, hold on. That right there is 13 and a half hours worth of driving. You're going 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Then you're covering 60 miles in an hour. So in 806 miles, that's 13 and a half hours Mm -hmm. out of 20 hours. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you spent all that time driving I mean, that's doing something for the rest of the time. Yeah, that's only six and a half hours that you're doing something all the rest of the time. Like, that's not a lot of time, but that's a lot of driving. That's 13 and a half hours worth of driving. That's insane. Yep. He also bought a new cell phone. And while he was with the rental car, 
there was zero activity on his cell records. The funny thing is, his dad, Steve, also had no activity on his phone in those hours as well. And the police found this super interesting. So on December 17th, they were like, we're going to go interview Steve. So they drove all the way up to Washington and interviewed Steve. And just like his son, Steve gave zero clues as to where Susan had gone had been, or had been taken to. But he did to admit, admit to the police that he was in love with Susan. Oh, my. <laughs> in fact, in his interview, he tells the police that Susan, quote, seemed to crave his attention. I highly doubt that. Nobody would crave this man's attention. Ever. In fact, in the hundreds of videos that Steve took of Susan, she always seemed very uncomfortable being around. He was always videotaping everything when he was with his family. And she was always super uncomfortable around him, especially since he would follow her to the bathroom and record her getting ready or doing her hair. He recorded her doing everything. It was super creepy. And if that's not creepy enough, he also secretly recorded her. At one point, Susan told her friend that the reason they moved away from Washington was to get away specifically from Steve. She said that he was very inappropriate with her and he she had to get as far away from him as she could. What did he secretly record her doing? Or was it just he recorded her without her When knowing? she was eating cereal, he would go to her work and record her walking out of her job oh, he, rec- he she one time caught him recording her when she was trying to get dressed there was also a recording that he had taken of her putting in a tampon <gasps> oh my gosh Helen, <laughs> this dude was a total creep so josh and susan went through a period where they stopped talking to steve and that was after, after they moved. Yeah. And after a while, Josh let Steve back into their lives. And Steve was able to convince him that this was all just a misunderstanding. And Susan was overreacting and she was lying. So with Steve back in their lives, Susan's stress level was probably through the freaking roof between her emotionally abusive husband and her sicko father-in-law. And one thing you probably noticed about Susan is she confides in her friends a lot. And I don't think she ever told her parents anything because I would never tell my parents that ever. I feel like if you're going to tell your friends something, they're not really going to intervene in your life. No. They they are just kind of a soundboard for your venting. Yes. But if you told your parents. You have to do something about it. You Oh, your parents. Like, I know if I told my parents, hey, this is what's going on in my life. They would be out the door coming either to my house or driving up to that person's house to chew them out and be like, what the heck is going on? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, they would step up and act, which is why she probably never told her parents. But, I mean, if she felt that uncomfortable, you need to tell someone other than your friends. Yeah. So, her best friend, Kiersey, she counseled Susan to get a divorce. She's like, nothing is going to get better. You're not in a good relationship and you're unhappy. Leave. Leave. After Kiersey telling her over and over and over again about uh, that she should get out, Susan finally consulted a divorce attorney. And the divorce attorney told Susan, that, you know, you need to record yourself walking through your house. You need to document everything. I watched the video of that. And if you listen to it, you can just hear how sad and defeated she is. And at one point she says, this is in case anything happens to me. And then she like pauses and she goes, or my family. And, like, I truly believe Susan knew what Josh was capable of. And I think she really feared for her life. And in one of her emails dated in July 20, July 5th, 2008, 
She said, every moment I step back and take stock of what I'm dealing with, it feels like a never-ending cycle, but I'm too afraid of the consequences. Losing my kids, him kidnapping them, divorce, or actions worse on his part. That's sad to live in such fear. Yeah, and and again, on November 31st, 2008, this is a year before she went missing, my parents, she said, my parents are ready to help pay any lawyer fees slash mediator since I think it's required. And if I'm supposed to divorce him and somehow the divorce won't be as ugly as I fear, like him kidnapping the kids and taking me for broke. In addition to the video of Susan walking through her house, she also wrote a will that she kept in a lockbox at the bank that she worked at. Smart. Yeah. On the front of it, she wrote, for family and friends of Susan, all except for Josh Powell, husband. I don't trust him. And it also said, and Josh, Josh is not allowed to possess this. That's like, that was what was written on the front of it. Inside, part of it was written, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. In the spring of 2009, Susan had given Josh an ultimatum to start treating her better, to go back to church, to help with the kids, to stop being such a freaking wanker. I'm sorry. If you have made a will... And you are already seeing yourself as possibly being murdered by your husband. Why are you going to stay? Why are you giving him an ultimatum at all? Yeah. If you are that afraid and a little bit almost certain that that's going to happen. Because at the front, it's like, oh, if this happens. But then she's like, it almost at the end of you saying that, reading her will, it almost sounds like she's pretty sure it's probably going to happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She knew. If you're that, if that is, okay, I'm not trying to victim blame, but if that is how you are feeling and almost thinking that that is a very real possibility, I understand like living in fear, but that needs to be your page turner to get out. Like there is no Mm -hmm. ultimatums. There is no, Hey, let's go to church more often. Treat the kids better. You are in fear of your life. Get out. Yeah. That I, I'm not trying to victim blame, but that to me is yeah, a little bit short-sighted on her part. Like it's mm-hmm. one thing if you're being abused and you think he can change, but you have literally admitted that you are in fear of your life. Why are you still there? I can 100% honestly say that I was in a, a, a very, 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 very similar situation. I didn't have kids, but I was in a sim, basically that marriage. I was in that marriage and um, it's possible to leave. Trust me. I did it. But I was also at a point where I was like, if I don't leave, I'm going to die here. And that was scarier for me than the actual leaving. And everybody's different. Everybody's breaking point is different. So, and I know it's probably harder for her because they did have kids. Yeah, that's true. And she didn't have access to her own money. Yeah, she had had a very big fear of escaping. Like, the escaping was terrifying to her, too. She probably didn't know where to go and what to do. I mean, she's in, like, what, her mid-20s? From experience with a narcissist, Mm -hmm. being married to a narcissist, it is terrifying because she also probably thought, if I leave this man, do I even have the evidence or the things that I need to make mm-hmm. sure that he can't come back into our lives and he can't take the kids because she's probably thinking it's I'm better off to be with my yeah. kids in his yeah, presence absolutely. than my kids to be in his presence without me, which is a very 
likely possibility if she left and that probably scared her to death. So I assume a lot of it had to do with her children and who knows, maybe there were lots of days where she was like, I don't, they probably had their good days and their bad days. I was just going to say that there were good days and bad days. I've been there. I've done that. And her good days over helped her forget about the bad days. And she was like, Oh, maybe this, could be something good and then he would flip and then it was like it was just a whole cycle i'm sure mm-hmm. yeah so she gave him that ultimatum as she said if you don't change if you don't do all these things then i'm i'm leaving i'm taking the kids so the question is did susan's ultimatum push josh josh over the edge and did she confront him again that night of december 6th and did josh lose control oh i'm sure but the only the only possible theory against that is that she'd given him plenty of ultimatums before and never followed through. Exactly. So why would he have snapped this time? Like maybe if it were the first ultimatum, I could see him snapping. And I mean, I'm not saying he didn't snap, but if I was Josh, I'd be like, yeah, okay, sure. You've already given me like yeah. how many ultimatums and you back out each time. Like I wouldn't have My taken him seriously. My kids do that to me all the time. You know, this is kind yeah. of this, uh, case kind of reminds me of um the what was it the watts family oh yeah they had yeah. two what was his name little girl shanann and christopher yeah and, the one on netflix yeah. except that he had a mistress and she, yeah Josh was too he killed too. her because yeah he wanted to start a new life with someone new. yeah but yeah. she did i think she did confront him like a couple times about yeah. yeah, but um, I'm going to end there for now. That's our halfway point? That's our halfway oh point. Oh. This is part one, and we will uh, continue next week on this. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.